Last week, we had a great conversation about building a family legacy. This week, we dive into the side of team building no one talks about. After over a decade of nonprofit leadership impacting thousands, we hit a wall. We started asking ourselves, how can we go beyond personal success and leave a legacy that lasts far beyond our lifetimes? A job change and a couple pivots into for-profit leadership later? We're on the search to get that question answered. If you're a leader who cares deeply about supporting nonprofits from the inside or from the outside, this podcast is for you. We believe that the world needs what you are going to leave behind, and it's our passion to help you find that thing and build it. I'm Ted. And I'm Lisa. Welcome to the Legacy Builders Movement. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I am super excited. Today, we get to have a conversation about team building, which is something that Lisa and I have had a lot of experience with, and we're really excited to dive into the topic. Lisa, are you pumped? I'm so pumped. All right. Um, This is such an important conversation. Depending on where you're at, you might be looking at building up a volunteer team or building your board team or whatever it might be, understanding how to actually go about building a team and not just asking people to do something, but actually building that team uh, culture and identity and all the different things that go along with it. This is something that we've had a lot of experience doing, and we love to help organizations do this. Yeah, it's really important as you're thinking through what kind of team you want to build. You want to think through all of the group dynamics and the people psychology and all that stuff that comes into play, different types of people, what really makes people tick and makes people want to uh, not just help out with something, but actually like identify as like, this is my team. This mm-hmm. is the thing that fulfills my life, that brings me life, that brings me joy. And, uh, you know, take that a step further. Not just not just like I said, helping out, but actually being not just a part of something, but actually owning it and saying, this is me. Mm-hmm. And that's how teams are most effective. And it's also how teams are best formed and that's what attracts new team members especially when we talk about team growth uh, being able to develop good systems in the beginning to be able to set that up for success is what's going to contribute to you being able to grow a team because I think a lot of people a lot of nonprofits, especially are like hey I would love to have more volunteers in a specific area and you can go out and you can recruit and you can try to grab new people but if you don't have the right stuff set up in the beginning the right team structures the right systems and the right Uh, methods of going about it, you might be able to recruit a whole bunch of new people, but then they're just going to leave after helping out one time. Mm -hmm. Or you might be able to get a bunch of new people to come in and start helping, or this can even actually work with fundraising as well. You might get some people on board to contribute in some capacity, their time, their money, their resources, whatever that looks like. Um, But there's really a difference between oh yeah, I give there, or oh yeah, I, I help out there once in a while, to this is what I do, to this is who I am. Right. Um, this is mine. And I think sometimes as leaders, we almost get afraid of people calling it my organization because there's a certain level of ownership that almost makes it a little bit uncomfortable when we start hearing people use that language. But in the nonprofit <laughs> sector in particular, if you can't get people into that space where they're saying, this is mine, this is what I do, it's my job to support this and help make it move forward until you can get people to that spot where they have ownership without the title um, and where they personally take responsibility for it, it really limits what you're able to do and what you're able to build long term. Um, it ends up with a high rate of turnover. 
Um, the highest leaders might come in and start doing stuff, but if they're just do, there to do a task and they never actually take on that identity of it being theirs, they might just find a different place where they can go do the tasks somewhere else. Um, right. And we see this. And so this is going to be a fun conversation for us. Yeah. Tasks aren't enough. They're not fulfilling enough. There needs to be a sense of identity that is built into, baked into what you're doing. And what's really cool, too, I want to encourage you to lean into this, especially if you're a business owner as well. Mm-hmm. This is great for hiring conversations. This is great for culture building and stuff, too, because I know a lot of our listeners are kind of like riding the fence between nonprofit, trying to be a socialpreneur and also being an entrepreneur and, and building a business, figuring out how you can uh, couple those two things together. Team building is essential in both of those worlds. Mm-hmm. So let's dive into the topic. I'm so excited. This is going to be a super great one. Well, you are antsy to get going. So why don't you kick this off? with whatever it is you want to talk about. I know, <laughs> sure. I can see you. You have like eight ideas in your head right now. <laughs> well, the first thing that comes to mind is we always need to be thinking about the first timer, whether that's a first uh, first timer volunteer or a first time new, new member to a team or a first timer, a person that you're having an interaction with, with your nonprofit, somebody that you're helping. What's that first time experience? And it's important because we can't just think about that first time experience um, when the first timer shows up, mm-hmm. when a new member joins the team. We can't. That can't be the first time that we're actually showing that we have a good first timer experience. We need to be modeling that all the time because the current team members are going to see the structures when the first timer isn't there. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's going to encourage them to then bring their friends along to be a part of what's going on. So in the context of uh, music ministry stuff that uh, that I've been privileged to be able to do, you know, we always thought through not just what's the first time or experience of somebody coming in to do music, at, uh, to, to listen to music to, at church or worship along with us, but also what's the first time or experience of somebody who's joining the team for the first time and then modeling that on a week to week basis. So that way, another musician who's on the team is like, wow, if I brought my buddy who plays drums, he's going to have a fantastic experience and probably want to play music with me more often. Mm -hmm. And that first time experience, having that in place is a cue to everyone who's already involved that this is something normal. We have the experience first time or should be coming in. And I like what you said. The first time isn't just about the first time someone hears about you. It's not about the first time that they serve. It's that first interaction at every single level and every single step or step along the way. So one thing that we did when we had people coming in who wanted to join and play music was we had the first time the kind of audition to get to know them the first time that they came to practice and just kind of were around. We had a first time experience for that. And then if they needed to progress and stay a little bit uh, there, the first time that they actually were able to play with the band, whether that be for part of practice, the first time that they actually got to play Uh, music for entire service, like every single step along that process is a first time experience. The first time someone goes from volunteer to leader, that's a first time experience. And sometimes we think the first time, like that first thing is the first time I shake their hand, the first time I talk to them, the first time I, I see them. But really, the first time experience carries through every time there's a dynamic shift, every time um, they come into contact with you again, it's constantly having it in your mind of if they are not fully 
bought into what it is that we're doing and what we're trying to accomplish, they are still a first timer on so many levels. And then once they're bought in fully and they identify with this is my team, this is what I do, I have ownership in this, then it becomes the first time experience of, hey, why don't you help us grow this? Why don't you help us build this? And so the first time the first time your interaction that we think about, we think of it as a one time thing. And yet the first time is really everything that happens from yeah, that point a, forward. It's a whole sequence of first time interactions. And if we can think like that, like I love what you said, because because as soon as we create that as the norm, that's when culture takes over. Right. I like to think of it like uh, brain synapses. I don't know if you guys have heard this before, but like the more your brain goes down a single a certain track the synapses fire more uh, consistently with each other, and that's how you can get on trains of thought, right? It's like you've created a train track, and you can get down that. So every time you eat waffles, all of a sudden you're thinking about your first date, or whatever it is, right? Because you've been (laughs) down that track. And what we want to try to do with organizations that we lead is to create the right track so that way that synapse fires for the team members and they see, okay, if this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens. And they just kind of naturally know it. Now, unfortunately, we're creating those trains of thought, those synapses, those systems all the time, whether we're doing them intentionally or non-intentionally. And most, more often than not, I think we're, we create those trains that don't quite go the right way. So we end up with teams that are not being formed well from the beginning and we end up with dysfunction later on whether that's dysfunction in we don't have a lot of team members or we have team members that don't get the culture and don't understand and we're constantly having to like you know put out fires you don't want to be in a situation where you're having to put out fires you're wanting to be in a situation where you're having to catch up because the whole team is functioning so well that they're carrying things out and without your constant meddling. Mm-hmm. There's a point where as leaders, we, we need to recognize that we have to build systems before they're ever needed. We need to build out volunteer opportunities before they're ever needed. When we're talking to some people about um, coming into a growth event, maybe it's a volunteer push, maybe it's a fundraising event. Um, I'm usually asking, how are you creating volunteer roles within this event? So let's say the summer you're coming up and you're thinking, man, we would really like to do um, a big picnic, a big picnic with people. <laughs> you know, we'd like to do a big picnic where people can come and bring their families and and have this big event. Well, you might think, you know what, if we have this like 100 people come, we only need three or four people helping out in these different areas. And if we set stuff up like this, then people can serve themselves and X, Y, and Z. Like that is not the right way to go about doing it because the whole purpose of growth is to get people on board. So leading up to that picnic, it's not about figuring out how few volunteers you can pull us off with. It is about creating as many volunteer roles as possible. Right. Like it's not something where, well, one person can do five jobs. Nope, it's five jobs. Use that as motivation to get five different people on board. That grows your volunteer base even before the event has happened. And then as people are coming to the event, then you're getting in front of even more people because those people are inviting people. And pretty soon the systems that we need to have built out you know, like we've built them and then we forced ourselves to have to fill them. And then pretty soon you have so many people that you're having to then build out new systems to handle it so that you can really keep up with what you have going on. Yeah, your organization is going to grow to the capacity of the organization. And if you are constantly trying to figure out how to uh, 
get everything so concentrated so that one or two people can do it, um, that's not going to help, especially in a nonprofit organization where really like your volunteer base is going to be the bread and butter Mm -hmm. of what uh, your organization is able to do. You need to be thinking about how can I grow the capacity of this, not how can I grow the efficiency of right. this. So a great example that we have from people that we've worked with um, in terms of the efficiency and where that goes to is we have an organization that um, they've done a lot of events over the years, but they've managed to whittle it down so that they only need a handful of volunteers. And what's happened was that a lot of the people surrounding the people within the organization aren't involved. They aren't plugged in. They don't really have a a way to fit. They don't have any sort of identity. There's no community being grown up because there just isn't space for them. Um, And what has happened over the years is that this has actually trickled upward to the point where the board no longer has board members or key leaders to draw from if they were to need another board member. The handful of board members that they have are a solid, solid, amazing group of people. Um, But what has happened is they have basically made it so that they don't need any leaders. And so what they have are people who are highly, highly vested and people who really aren't vested at all. They have this big, hollow center. It's a huge, hollow center. And what happens is if a board member needs to step down, they have to fill that role. They're having to choose from people who are not vested in the organization, who don't know how to do anything, who aren't necessarily leaders. Who don't understand the culture. Who don't understand the culture, who don't understand what they're trying to do, who don't understand the vision of it. And so when we talk about the importance of building your systems with capacity in mind so that you have to force yourself to bring in more people to actually utilize those systems, that's where growth and the ability to build can happen. A lot of times we think, I don't need to build out the system until we have five more people on the team. Well, if you don't have a system in place, you're probably not going to get those five more people. Right. Yeah. Like I said, organizations are going to grow to the capacity that they've built. And so if you have a structure set up where uh, you have implemented some really great technology that can just make things really, really fast. Uh, that's great. But now the role that you need filled for that is somebody who understands the technology, which that has now cr- created a larger learning curve, mm-hmm. which is going to slow down people's ability to become invested. And what's great about uh, nonprofit work and organizations in general is if you have a shallow end of the pool, you can build in and develop and train in culture over a long period of time. So that way, when the time comes for you to be able to draw and need a new leader or a new volunteer in a situation, you have like this wide variety of people to choose from to then invite uh, to step up and Mm -hmm. step into something more. And I think especially in nonprofit work, it's really easy to kind of get in your head like, oh, I'm asking so much of people. Like, obviously, we want to have a balance here. You don't want to just suck the life out of people either. You want this to be an experience that enriches their life. But we have to remember that sometimes people's lives are enriched by being called into something. Mm -hmm. They, They don't really realize how much more fulfilling their life could be. And so it's our roles as leaders to create lots of opportunities and to call people and invite and encourage them into it to experience uh, how good it can feel to make a change in the world. Mm -hmm. And when they get a taste of it, then you can kind of find out, okay, if this person really doesn't like this specific style of this or they love it. And at that point, then you can figure out, okay, what's 
What's going to be a better, a more fulfilling situation for them to do more of this or to do less of this or to just shift it in some way so they're doing uh, something different that they like a little bit more, but they're still able to help the cause that they care about. Mm-hmm. And this creating more roles for people, it's not just limited to the very base volunteer roles. Sometimes we're like, well, you know, I have some people coming in and I can divvy up this thing, like this one task into like two different parts and whatever. Like we still need to make sure that we're using their time well and showing them that what they're doing is valuable. So if we give people work that isn't valuable to do, um, they're not going to stick around. But if as leaders, we can take a step up and really look at the at what we're doing and starting to split up our leadership roles into multiple different people. And instead of, you know, us being over, maybe we're over like four main areas and we have volunteers under each of those areas. Instead of us saying, I do these four things and then I have volunteers. If we take a step up and say, no, I'm over these four things. It's my job to raise up four leaders to help with each of these areas and then help them to raise up more volunteers. That right there is increasing our capacity. Um, But again, sometimes it's scary as leaders because we feel like if we take ourselves out of the equation and make it so that our teams function without us, I won't be needed anymore. Um, But the exciting thing is, is when we grow that capacity and we're willing to give away some of what we do to people who are highly vested and they care about it and they get excited by doing it and they want to be committed to something where they can be helping other people or helping whatever the cause is. When we are willing to let go of those tasks and really embrace the fact that other people can do this better than us, it gives us a different leadership position to be able to spend more time investing in core and key people. Um, And so it really isn't, there's no cap on it. Speaking of no cap, I love hats. I have a ton of different hats. I used to have dreadlocks and I could never wear hats because my, like the width of my head was so big. The only hats I could wear were those like uh, those Rastafarian like big dreadlock hats. And uh, I'm not the kind of guy who could pull those off. So <laughs> Lisa's shaking her head. She's like, no. <laughs> and um, so as soon as uh, we, we got the dreadlocks off, I was able to get a hat and I'm like, oh my gosh, I just love baseball caps. Like I wear them all the time. Um, and this seems like totally off topic, but it's not because one of the most common things that I hear from small organizations and uh, nonprofit leaders, especially is, oh, we just wear a lot of hats. There are a few of us, but like I wear like five different hats. Mm -hmm. And what I want you to do is shift your thinking for a second and think, it's not that I'm wearing a lot of hats. I'm robbing people of the ability to wear this awesome hat. Mm -hmm. Like every time that I put this hat on, I'm stealing it from somebody else. Mm -hmm. And like you were just saying, we want to think about our roles, not as these are the things that I do, but these are the things that I am responsible for. Helps us to kind of say, okay, maybe I need to wear this hat today. But while I'm wearing this hat today, I need to show somebody else how awesome this hat is. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, a lot of times it happens with, with nonprofit leaders, especially. <laughs> I think it just really shows its face a lot in nonprofit work, because generally people who are leading nonprofits are thinking, like, I want to make the world a better place. I want to make people's lives better. So we tend to put on the hats that we hate the most. Yeah. Because we assume that everybody else hates those hats. Oh, my gosh. It's so true. So we're wearing, like, weird like Sherlock Holmes hats. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be wearing this hat. (laughs) Like we shouldn't be wearing a Rastafarian hat. You don't look good in the Rastafarian (laughs) hat, but somebody else might. Right. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I think it's a really big thing because for you, this is the equivalent of you wearing like a cowboy hat. <laughs> like you just don't like doing some of the administrative details type things. And what was a huge <laughs> eye opener for you was when you had someone join the team who just said, I just love spreadsheets and I just love the details and I just <laughs> right. love contacting people and I love filling slots with people's names. I just love scheduling. I, I was like, who, what in tarnation? I was wearing my cowboy <laughs> hat at the time and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. But and, it's true because as leaders, we want to see other people fulfilled. And so sometimes what we do is we take off the hats that we enjoy and hand those out and we keep the hats that we hate, assuming everyone else agrees with us. Yeah. And that's just simply not the case. If you're wearing five ha- hats, you shouldn't give away four of them. You should be leading people to be able to give away all five of them. Right. Because there's a new hat that is a leader over five key leaders that you're going to have to be able to put on and have to be able to wear. Um, and yeah, it's really funny, though. Personality wise, we think that people value and they enjoy the things that we value and enjoy. I think it's just part of being human. Uh, we forget. And so remembering no, people like things that I don't like. They enjoy doing the parts that I don't necessarily like to do. And as we really embrace that and help bring up those other leaders, we are doing such a service to every single volunteer on our team because they are being contacted and communicated from someone who loves what they are doing. Yeah, a great example of this. I was talking with a leader and they and, and we were talking about uh, leading a, a, a worship team. And they said, I said, like, what are, what's one of the things that you hate? And they said, oh, I just, I get so stressed out and I hate picking songs. And they had assumed that that was kind of like everybody hates that. And like a big light bulb went off in my head. I'm like, gosh, like 95% of people love picking songs. But mm-hmm. because you've assumed that other people are like you, that then you just kind of put up with it and you do it because somebody, somebody, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. But it was like, no, like. That's a job that people love to do. And remembering, too, that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of like leadership personality where I'm like very like uh, charismatic and kind of like off the wall and stuff. So the things that are like that I consider to be monotonous, I'm like, I would never I would not wish that I'm my worst enemy, you know. <laughs> but then I realized like one of my best friends loves that stuff. And so when I gave him the chance to do some of those things along with uh, what I was leading at the time. It was like his eyes lit up and he became so much more invested than I had ever seen him in the team before. Mm -hmm. And so thinking through that and and setting up systems so that way you can find those people and give them opportunities. Yeah. So if you're talking to a leader, Ted, and they have, let's say, five different hats that they're wearing, a lot of times as leaders, we don't know what the five different hats are. We We feel like we're wearing like a 10 gallon hat. (laughs) <laughs> and it's just massive and we it just feels heavy and we don't know how to handle it. When in reality, it's probably five or six different hats that are all stacked up on top of each other. Like that old Dr. Seuss book. I think it was a Dr. Seuss book. Anyway, the guy was wearing a lot of hats. All right. Guy with a lot of hats. Um, how would you recommend someone start the process of recognizing what those different hats are? I would say first start by mapping out the different activities that you do during a week and then try to kind of compartmentalize them into groups. Mm -hmm. Um, Think about the skills that are required for each of those groups. Think about the 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 kind of people that would be really good at certain things or really bad at certain things. And you'll find that those things start to separate themselves. I remember we did this exercise a few times. Uh, we've mm-hmm. even done that in our own business. Mm-hmm. Like you you and I 
sitting down and being like, well, why is Lisa having to worry about marketing? Mm-hmm. She doesn't really like doing that, but it's it was a big piece of what you were doing at the time. It's like, let's let's split this up into things that not only that we're really good at, but also we enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, Lisa was handing a lot of uh, like I was dabbling a little bit with some of like the financial stuff. Well, guess what? Now Lisa's the CFO <laughs> and it just it makes both of our lives so much better. And I think sometimes it is getting that outside perspective, too. Like in our mm-hmm. work, we talk, to, we talk to each other. When you were leading other organizations, there were times that I would help you identify some of your tasks. But there were also times that you'd have a leader um, or someone that you trusted or maybe they're just a really key volunteer. And you'd say, hey, what are you interested in doing? Like, you have so much potential. I'd love to see you, you know, step up into leadership. What are you interested in? And they would look back at you and say, you know, I noticed that this thing happens. A lot of times the thing that they noticed was something that you weren't doing well. I noticed that the texts on this day should probably go out like three days early, but they're always going out like a couple days before the event. And I feel like I could help with that. And part of that is because that was what they cared about and that was their skill. And, and so, so they, when you they were able to them, notice the problems with it better. Yep. Right? And so when you asked them, that was what they identified with. They didn't notice some of the other issues that the team might be having, but they noticed the thing that they cared about and how that was being mm-hmm. handled. Or sometimes they'd say, I noticed that you spend a lot of time doing this. I'd love to be able to take some of that off your plate, or I think I could help with that. Um, and those conversations, you do want to make sure that they're people that you trust and that you know are good, solid people on your team before you just go up to someone and say like, hey, what what do you think should be different here? Um, because there has to be that level of growth and relationship over time. Um, but sometimes just asking someone that you want to see become a leader, just asking them what they're what they see that they could even help what, with. What frustrates them? This is why, you know, I think a lot of organizations sell themselves short when they don't do performance reviews or they don't do mm-hmm. uh, regular check-ins with employees or volunteers is because they're missing out on some really key information that could help them to better improve. Yeah, both performance reviews and exit interviews. Absolutely. Um, yeah, exit interviews for sure. Performance inter- performance reviews for the people that are with you, even like volunteers and stuff, having those moments of just checking in with them and asking them all those hard questions. But then the exit interviews, too. I know, especially when they're volunteers and they leave, it becomes really easy to just say, well, you know what? It's turnover. That's what happens. But those are so like those moments are so crucial to call them and just ask and say, I'm not trying to recruit you back. I'm not trying to get you to stay. I just need to know what I could have done differently. Yeah, what we could improve. So maybe the next person doesn't have a bad experience Mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. And those those are so huge because you learn a ton in those and people feel more free to just kind of like say say it how it is in an exit interview as well. They're not like, well, I don't have to try to keep my volunteer role anymore. It's gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'll, I'll flip you off. I'll tell you everything. Yep. Um, and while sometimes that can be a little painful to hear all the things that you did wrong, it's it's how you it's how we get better. Yep. It's how we get better. <laughs> I want to dive into and talk just a little bit about. Um, forming identity and how we do that. Because um, I know when we work with our clients a lot, this is a big, big, big thing that we try to help with. Um, Getting people to not just have helped out, but how to really identify with their organization. So Lisa, when, uh, when it, when it say, let's say a new volunteer shows up at a nonprofit and they, and they want to help out. What are some of the things that you would coach that volunteer leader to help build that identity into that new volunteer. 
Um, I'd say first have a very intentional um, onboarding process. Yes. A very intentional, here's, you know, you're coming in and not just the process of you're seeing what happens, you're helping, you're doing. um, But then also as part of that process, having a very clear, here's what we do, here's why we do it, really diving into the vision statement. Not a huge long, I'm going to go off on this, but just a few (laughs) key minutes and a couple key points of this is our vision statement. This is why this role in particular matters. And then giving them some type of um, guideline or parameter, basically so that they know at this point, you've kind of stepped out of the box. Like, here are base expectations. You're going to show up on time. We'd appreciate if you had a good attitude. We'd love you to communicate. If you see something wrong, please tell us. If we answer or if we text you, please get in touch with us. Please just respond. Nothing like super, super crazy, but just enough so that they feel like they can step into this with confidence. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we think that by giving people the most amount of space, they're going to have the most rain to be able to fit in. But for a lot of people... That's scary. It's scary. And when things are mushy, they have a hard time figuring out what that identity is and if they really fit or if they belong. They spend a lot more time trying to figure out what the the unwritten rules are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it can take months and months before they actually start to identify with the group because they've just been trying to feel it out the whole time. They're having to test all the electric fence yeah. things like raptors to figure out where the holes in the fence are. Mm-hmm. And then once where they know what their boundaries are, then they can start to say, okay, this is my sandbox. Yep. And this is what I can do. Mm-hmm. And it's different because some people don't need that at all. Um, but a large percentage of the people really, really, really do. So like I'm a pretty high capacity person and I'm not saying that to be like, I'm awesome. But she is, I'm just though. saying like I'm I've <laughs> learned a lot over the years. And so I know that I'm a high capacity person. But if I walk into a situation and I don't know what my parameters are, I won't take a step in any direction. I'll stand it back. You. I'll observe. I would rather know what my parameters are and stay in the sandbox than have to take a step to the left and get a, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Or take 10 steps forward and be like, oh, step nine, you cross the line at step 10. And like, I, 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 don't, I really don't think that you're rare in that. I think most people are would rather avoid confrontation. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some people who love confrontation. They love testing the boundaries, but... I'd say the vast majority of people want to avoid confrontation. So what that's going to do is it's going to keep them in a smaller, uh, smaller sandbox and they're, only going to be able to operate to a certain level of effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And so even for us, when we are walking into an organization to help out, I want to know what the parameters are there. Which team are we working with? Or are we free to talk to whoever we want to? Um, At what point am I going to be seen as overstepping leadership? Um, Who can I have conversation with? Who shouldn't I be having conversation with? We've talked to some people who just kind of want the outside advice and we'll bring them through our program and give them steps that they can be working on over the next 12 weeks to fix what's broken. Um, But then there's another organization that we walked into and they're basically like, this whole area, talk to who you need, like, say what you need to do what you need to talk to everyone give me all of your feedback basically this this place is yours as long as we're working with you because we want to hear all of it mm-hmm. um and i'm fine either way my thing isn't that i'm afraid of confrontation because i'm not she's not <laughs> um but i am very very uh i will not 
overstep a leadership line. Because you know how important leadership is. Yep, because I know at the minute someone oversteps in leadership, it deteriorates that person's leadership going forward. And so if I cross over that line, I know what an impact that can make, and I just won't do it. It could be really hard for that person to repair that, too. Mm -hmm. You don't want to leave a wake of destruction behind. Right. So understanding that kind of thing is just super, super, super important. I think originally this whole thing started when you asked about how to start building that identity in someone. Oh, yeah. Um, I'd say the next thing, kind of once you have those parameters in place and the whole onboarding is giving people the identity, just verbally giving people permission. So when they say... I just love this organization. I'm super thankful for you. If you turn that back and say, hey, this is your organization too. Yep. Like you help do that. Like you're like you're thanking me, but but this was yours. Like you did this and you own this. And I think as leaders, one thing that I'm always trying to do when someone says, Thank you so much for whatever it is, I try and turn it around and say, Oh, why are you thanking me? Like you did the work. You did this. And I'm constantly trying to deflect either the thanks back to them so that they understand the role they played or deflect the things up to the next level leader so that they know that it's not just about me, but it's about the organization as a whole. And that's so good, too, because when people realize that, wow, I actually did play a role in that, like I did help with that situation or whatever, people then that's when the identity really starts to form because up until that point, I think people are kind of afraid to take credit. Mm -hmm. But when you give them permission to take some credit, then that's when they're like, I want to repeat that. I want to, I want to be able to take a little bit more credit. I mean, obviously, you know, as world changing individually, individuals who want to leave legacies, I think we're all happy with as long as the world is a, better place in some shape or form when I'm gone and if no one even remembers me I'm okay with that to a degree like Mm -hmm. that's fine but we do need to remember that it is still built into people to know that they made a difference Mm -hmm. and to know that if they do it again they'll be able to make more of a difference yeah so it's it's a way of rewarding the right actions. Yeah. It's rewarding the right action by helping them understand that they can have ownership in this. It's also protecting ourselves from believing what people say about us. Like one of the worst things as a leader is to believe the headlines um, and to develop an ego. And so mm. a few weeks ago, I was speaking on a stage um, and I got off and someone came up and they said, man, that was really good. And the first thing that I did was I said, oh, thanks. But you know what? I, I'm just so thankful for your encouragement. You are an incredibly kind person. Thank you so much for being that person. Um, and it wasn't because I wanted to negate what they said. I still said thank you. But I immediately flipped it around to say, you decide to be a person who is going to show up. You decide to be someone who is going to pay attention. You decided to be someone who's here. And because of that, here's how awesome you are. And as a as a person, like it's way nicer to be like, oh, thanks. That was Oh, yeah. And just kind of brush it off. Either we accept too much credit or we completely negate it and just never say thank you. Neither one of those is good. (laughs) Um, But when we understand that what the people within our organization do is more valuable than what we do, it changes the script and it allows them to care about the organization in a way that they can't care about it if we're trying to own it as ours. I'll go ahead and throw this into... uh 
personal experience for me too. I remember several years back, um, I was trying to figure out how to say thank you because, you know, playing music and stuff on stage and singing and leading people in worship at a church, uh, people would come up all the time after a service and be like, oh, that was so good or wow, that was really, you know, fun or whatever. <clears throat> and one day it clicked for me because somebody came up and they said, wow, that was really, really great. And they stood out to me because they're a person who like very much engaged in the music, which was something that we were trying to encourage people to do more. They were engaging like in our church, like raising hands and like singing along and all those things were things that we're really trying to get people to do. And so I was like, how can I encourage them to do that more? And I realized that's the answer to my thank you is like, hey, thank you so much. I just want you to know something though. And I, I use this all the time now and it, it works in so many different ways. But I said, I just want you to know this, like I might be leading you in worship, but when you're out there and you're really engaging, like, I hope you understand that you're leading me in worship and I need that too. Mm-hmm. And like several years back when I started doing that, I noticed every single interaction that I had with people like that the next week, they would be so all in and like they, they recognize that, wow, it's really important for me to do that. Not mm-hmm. just that it's good for me or whatever, but it's important for me to do that. And yeah. when we can help people understand the importance of what they do on a regular basis, that acknowledgement of how uh, how much of a big deal it is that they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. And that's if you when can, they start to identify with it. Right. And if you can call it out in that person and even better, if they're surrounded by other people calling it out in front of everybody, that makes a huge difference. Because I remember times that we would have just a great time doing what we were doing and someone afterwards be like man that was awesome and you'd immediately turn around be like yeah isn't it great this other person volunteer was the one who scheduled all of you and you all showed up and that's why it's so great like you would find ways of saying thank you for that while also pointing to someone else or yeah thank you for showing up fully prepared thank you for showing up fully ready to volunteer thank you for showing up for whatever it might be i'm going to deflect a little bit and say i learned this from lee cockrell he wrote a book called making magic he worked uh, at disney he was in charge of all the volunteers at disney parks and if you've ever had a great disney experience you know uh, how amazing the staff at Disney parks are. Um, I think most people who have gone have some sort of story of how amazing uh, the mm-hmm. Disney staff uh, can be. But this was the guy who like built their systems. And at a talk that I was uh, at listening to uh, one year, he, he said, this is the free fuel of leadership. A-R-E. It's the word R-A-R-E. Acknowledgement, which is just saying, like, I see what you did. Recognition, which is, hey, everybody, look at what this person did. In a good way, right? And then encouragement, like encouraging people. He said, if you can learn how to burn that free fuel of leadership, like you're going to be able to get so much more out of people and they're going to get so much more fulfillment out of what they do than if you just handed them a check. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, when we can hand people a check, it's not always the case in a nonprofit situation. That's why we have volunteer roles. (laughs) (laughs) But when even when you can hand them a check, say they're a staff member or whatever, it's still important to burn that because burn that free free fuel of leadership, because if they um, are getting a check, but they also have that, they're going to contribute at such a higher level and be so much more excited and love what they do. Yeah. People don't stay at nonprofits for the paycheck. 
Oh, definitely People not. People stay at nonprofits <laughs> for what it is that they get to be a part of and what it is that they get to do. And so even if you're a nonprofit leader, whether you're at the top or in the middle, if you have staff under you, you need to be vision casting to them, um, building the community around them and everything as if they're a volunteer, um, because it's the community and the culture that you're building that is going to keep them. Um, but if you think that the money is worth the heartache of being in a nonprofit. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but if you're in nonprofit work, you know that the things that we're trying to do, the issues are so big and the cause and the effect that we're trying to have sometimes feels so small that there's no amount of pay that really makes it fully worth it unless you can get someone to see that the difference that they're making for one person is worth all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But that takes an intentional I'm going to treat you as if this is your first time. And going back to that first time experience, I'm going to teach you as if this is your first time in 2021 um, trying to recruit in a whole new way. This is your first time um, engaging with your next leader in a new way. This is your first time. And when we understand that and we understand how much we can pour into the people that we are surrounded by, those below us, those around us, and even those above us, um, that's really where community building can happen. And that's where your growth will happen within your organization. Absolutely. So with that, we got to wrap this up. Um, I do have a question for each of you who are listening. If you're someone right now who has said, and if you're a nonprofit or in not or in for profit. Um, I wear multiple hats. <laughs> I just wear different hats. I want to know what hats you're currently wearing. Um, take some time, jot down all the tasks that you can think of and try and figure out how many hats you have on and start thinking through how you can build up other people um, so that they can reach their full potential, because that's really what leadership is all about. Thanks for listening to the Legacy Builders Movement. If you appreciate this podcast and find that it's valuable, the best way that you could help us is to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. To learn more about Legacy Builders, go to LegacyBuildersInternational.com. That's LegacyBuildersIntl.com. 